0: Baxi's musical podcast is brought to you by Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in Western Massachusetts with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They're not just a dispensary. They are a destination. Visit CannaProvisions.com. That's CannaProvisions.com. Adults 21, please and please consume responsibly. And now, my interview with Dave Gregory from XTC on Baxi's musical podcast. Rexy's musical podcast. I don't know if any of you have noticed, but I've made no secret of the fact that my favorite all time band is the band XTC. Obsessively so. And while the temptation to only talk about XTC during this podcast is pretty damn strong, I have chosen to spare you all of that. There are, after all, other bands out in the world that I love just as well, but probably not as much. Could I do a different XTC podcast every week? Sure. Will I? Probably not, because there's already a podcast for that, and it's a pretty damn good one. However, when the opportunities have presented themselves, I simply cannot say no. So when I had the chance to talk to Andy Partridge or Colin Molding of XTC, what was I supposed to do? When I had the chance to speak to producer Hugh Padgham about producing XTC's 1982 double album English Settlement or engineering 1980's Black Sea or 1979's Drums and Wires, I had to be sure to ask him about other things as well, like The Police or Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins. And when I had the chance to talk to Thomas Walsh of Pugwash about writing music with Andy Partridge, the two of us spent nearly 25 minutes talking about XTC before we ever got around to talking about his own music. And we never got the chance to talk about the music he recorded with today's guest, XTC's guitar wizard, Dave Gregory. From 1979 to 1999, Dave Gregory was, and this is a very powerful statement, the instrumental muscle of XTC. Dave Gregory is the multi-instrumentalist that took on the task of replacing keyboard player Barry Andrews just before the band's commercial breakthrough with making plans for Nigel from Drums and Wires. From there, XTC would embark on a punishing schedule on the road until 1982, when Andy Partridge abruptly retired from live performances. For the next 17 years, XTC would relegate themselves exclusively to the studio, Where they produced an incredible string of albums Including their masterpiece Skylarking Which they released in 1986 Dave Gregory was an essential centerpiece In actualizing the genius of the band's Two primary songwriters And Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding And with his incredible skill As an instrumentalist and arranger It's hard to imagine what the band Might have sounded like without him And so it was my pleasure To finally get a chance to speak With Dave Gregory from XTC On Backseat Musical Podcast Good to see you. Yes, likewise. Yeah. How are you? Wonderful, thank you. Wonderful. I want to start off. Uh, you know, first of all I'll tell you, but uh, about a year and a half ago, I interviewed Andy. Last summer, I interviewed Colin. Uh, I also interviewed you, Padum, and uh, even spoke to Thomas Walsh of Pugwash, who says hello, by the way. Uh, okay. <laughs> and all of it in preparation to finally get a chance to speak to Dave Gregory. So I, I, I think oh, I'm finally yes. ready to finally talk to the muscle behind XTC. So. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I like it. I like your. I like your style already. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, XTC has always been. I think from the the very moment I heard them, Im, Im, a band that immediately connected with me. And uh, it, I mean, we're going back to Black Sea was really the the first album that that I heard, and and just fell in love with it. And and even to this day, I think what's really unusual about this band is even to this day, there are still things within those songs that I'm hearing for the very first time. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the complexity of the of the songwriting, but I think as it relates to you, when I hear your guitar work and your arrangements and and how together you and Andy were able to play off each other, you don't hear that with any band, at least to not that level. Tell me a little bit about you know, working with him, just on, on a on a, on a purely musical level?
1: It was kind of a learning process for me in a way because I'd come from being kind of lead guitarist, quote-unquote, in most of the bands that I've been with. Uh, and uh, the band I was in prior, immediately prior to uh, joining XTC was a guitar-led band, and I was the sort of basic. It was just, you know, guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. And that was kind of... I'd always seen myself as, as I say... Quote unquote lead guitar. <laughs> and so when i um when I actually went to uh, audition with Andy and the band, I suddenly had to think, well, now hang on a minute, I'm just uh, Johnny come lately here. I've got to just step back and um be led really, right be led into how how to think about this new concept of uh, having uh, a principal songwriter. And uh, and someone who also plays great guitar, or who actually plays a very individual, fantastic guitar style that I somehow have to be complimentary with slash too. Right. <laughs> so there you go. I had to rethink my whole approach to guitar. Um, it was always, uh, we always had this idea that we wouldn't fall into the usual rock cliches. I mean, this is the thing about Andy, he, if if he thought that anything that he came up with had been done before, he'd he'd throw it he'd kick it into the long grass and he'd move on. You know, there was just no way he was going to go the rock and roll route or the blues route, all the sort of guitar-based band cliche stuff. That was never going to be happening with us, because really he was he was a songwriter. You know, he was using his guitar as a, a tool to help him write songs and to create music, obviously. And so uh, I had to fit in with that. And in fact, it wasn't that difficult because the songs were so great. You'd have to be a bit mess them up, frankly. <laughs> uh, and Colin Moulding, you know, he had a great, his bass playing never, I, I don't think, has ever really been properly recognised as part of the, the musical uh, framework of XDC. It was a hugely important. He had a very individual style, lots of melody, Lots of alternative kind of playing, that most bass wouldn't occur to most people playing bass. So we all approached it uh, with an idea of forming something. That we didn't overthink it. That was the other thing. You know, it wasn't like we uh, we sat we sat for weeks in rehearsal deciding what might what what was going to work and what wasn't. It was all uh, kind of yeah. As soon as it sounded good. We'll leave it that way. And then when we get to the studio, if we think of anything else, it's better.
0: When you, when you joined the band and obviously, you know, Barry Andrews, a pretty charismatic guy and and people looked at him as being as strong an individual in that band as maybe anybody else, maybe even as almost as strong as, as Andy. And you step in there, obviously Andy had a reputation as a songwriter, but what would happen in the next couple of years? Drums and Wires, you know, Black Sea, English Settlement, is you're starting to see the development of somebody in a pretty rapid period of time. Did you understand the level of which he was operating on or had the capabilities of operating on just as a songwriter?
1: Not when I first joined, no. Uh, he was always very, very gifted. Uh, and I always had respect for him, not just as a songwriter, but um, as an artist, I've seen his drawings and paintings that he did as a kind of hobby, and they're professional standard, really high high level sort of graphic art stuff, you know, and with the humour as well. <laughs> and some of it, I can tell you, was was pretty cruel. When he started doing caricatures of the band, it, you know, they were merciless. <laughs> but funny, you know, you couldn't get, be mad at him <laughs> because they were just too good. So I always knew he, of his ability as an artist, and that was reflected as well in his songwriting and his music. But the way he developed as a songwriter, you have to remember, you know, they they, they kicked off their career with this, with this daft song called Science Friction, which had, they'd been playing in Swind- around Swindon for the previous three or four years. It's, uh, I think it predates the Helium Kids. It goes way, way back. And then finally that comes out on this EP uh, as their first release, uh, having signed to Virgin in 77. And it was exactly, its just like, well, we've been hearing all these songs for the last three or four years around town. Finally, they've got them on record. Isn't it great? But I never imagined that, um, I, I could never predict how far he was going to go with that, uh, that thread of originality, because that's, that's really, the, you, you can't really pin down what his influences are as a writer, um, other than, you know, the sense of melody. Both him and Colin both had really great ears for melody, and that comes from their love of uh, The Beatles and The Kinks, Particularly, and all the all the brick pop bands from the sixties, really, that we went to school listening to. But like, like I said, like you know, when you consider that the guy who wrote Chalk Hills and Children is the same man that wrote Science Fiction ten years earlier, that's quite a quite a giant leap,
0: really. I agree. You know, I I saw the uh, the documentary that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, this is Pop, and it was released here in the states for a, a period of time, and then, <laughs> unfortunately, it's almost impossible to find now. But it's it's a really good documentary in the sense that there are very few bands with that kind of story. You have a guy who is a, you know, a pretty dominant member of the band. The first hit comes from the guy who is quieter but equally as talented, and then all of a sudden, you know, there are major changes going on. Things that would normally break up most bands. I mean, you know, the the idea that you know jealousies could have played a part in. Colin being singled out as, as writing you know, the singles, but that Andy would write everything else that alone would have caused tremendous friction in any other band. But yet for whatever reason, XTC continued to endure that, which I think it, it, it says a lot to the fact that you guys were all real dedicated to XTC and whether or not feelings were hurt there was like a bigger picture in mind, or at least there there seemed to be. Is, is that your impression of it too? Yeah, pretty much. That's it. We were
1: friends and th- that was our life for a good, you know, 15 years. It took precedence over everything, including family in some cases. So, you know, it was like every time that that was all we thought about. At least I can only speak for myself, but I'm pretty sure the other guys were writing every hour they had in their spare time. I, I w- often wonder how they were able to come up with so much stuff. Even though you know we'd been off the road after '82, actually it's that yes, in fact it's 40 years ago this month, April, that we that XTC's flight from LA <laughs> signaled the the very end of the touring unit. Yeah, and Terry Chambers' departure, but um, you know, they they just kept coming up with the songs. That's what kept us together. It was a shared sense of friendship and. Uh, a sort of local brotherhood, you know, because we were just from this little town in the West Country. Like you say, no other band had that kind of structure. It was (laughs) was the weirdest thing, but I can only put it down to the fact that there was always music to work on. There was never any shortage of material. Uh, Yeah, there was a lot of friction. There were a lot of arguments and, and nastiness occasionally, but, you know, you kind of, it's just just life isn't it you know you get over it and move on and uh, what what's the next song going to be what's the next album going to sound like what are we going to who are we going to who's going to produce it who's going to drum on it you right. know all of this needed thinking about and it occupied most of our time
0: you know people have made a, a, a very big deal about you guys coming off the road and, and, and we'll get to that in, in in just a little bit but the reality is and i and i I never had the chance to see XTC live, but I know that what you guys did during the time that you were on the road is you guys had a punishing road schedule. It wasn't like it was a rarity to see XTC, whether you were you know playing with the, the guys from Talking Heads or the police, you were on the road all the time and the, the demands of that had to be pretty profound especially for a guy like you know for andy who was struggling with with uh with addiction issues but for the rest of you that had to be exhausting
1: it was exhausting and also added to the fact that uh, the first american tour that we did in uh, in the early months of of 1980 that was all done pretty much in a Dodge minibus over land. We had, you know, motels to sleep in. Well, that was one thing. We did have a bed for the night. But, you know, we were literally on the road. And we covered, uh, I mean, not just, not just for the band, but the crew as well. You know, they, they really did put in the hours, as they say. And, but, you know, we were young and stupid and we wanted to do it. You know, we were ambitious. We wanted people to, to, to know about us and it was the opportunity to actually tour america it was great for me because i I, i'd always wanted to go to the states and just just as a tourist really and i would never miss an opportunity whenever we got to a new town i'd get up have breakfast and go out with a camera and take some pictures because i thought well i'm never coming back here you know (laughs) got to make the most of this it was the best best way to it is the way i was seeing it at the time yeah what a, what a great way to spend a holiday!
0: I have always, you know, read interviews with Andy saying that uh, you know he didn't, for whatever reason, he didn't think XTC was much of a live band. But you know the 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 proof is in the pudding, and there's plenty of uh, of footage of you guys playing live. And I mean, quite honestly, that was a very very tight band. It's it's very hard to be critical of of your performances.
1: Well, it was kind of. Um it was out of kilter with everything else that was going on at the time. It was nothing mainstream about it. It was the, you know, the butt end of punk uh, slash new wave. So right. we were kind of, I'm talking about when we came to the States, more than uh, maybe less so, more, it was more, more noticeable in the States than it was in Europe or, or in the UK when we were touring because everyone had been sort of gotten used to punk and bands sounding very, very edgy and, um, uh, a bit slapdash and a little bit noisy and not very refined. Whereas in America, that that was still, you know, something that they were getting used to. And I think we probably owe it to bands like, um, well, The Police, as it springs to mind, who are, you know, three really excellent musicians who kind of surfed in on the, the punk slash new wave thing and, and did something more pro- progressive with it and did it in a very professional way. And I think they kind of allowed American audiences to have a more sympathetic ear to some of of the the other new wave acts that were coming out of Britain, Mm -hmm. certainly. And we were sort of... I've listened to some rough cassettes and tapes that were made on the road around that time, the early 1980s, and it does sound very uh, kind of, well, (laughs) dissonant, shall we say. (laughs) Uh, But what was there... Was this drive and energy? And I, I've I've listened to these tapes and thought, how where did where did all this power come from? I don't remember. I could not play as hard and fast today as I did back then. But like I said before, you know, we were all young and stupid yeah. and determined.
0: <laughs> you mean you couldn't pick up a guitar and play Scissor Man as fast as you used to play back in your twenties? No, I can't play Scissor Man. Really? I can remember recording it. At, uh, just to
1: di- di- digress slightly. <laughs> <laughs> I had this. I was with this guy with this band called Tin Spirits uh, some years ago. They were big XTC fans, said, we were going to do this. But if we put this band together, we must do some XTC material. And Dan Steinhardt, who was the guitar player, of the band said to me, "You know, okay, we'll do. We have got to do Scissor Man." I said, "No problem, <laughs> Scissor Man. Yeah, I can do that with one hand, tie behind my back." I went to sleep playing Scissor Man back in the day. Well, so I got a Scissor Man now. That's it. But there was a technique to it. it was a lot of sort of upstrokes and everything with the right hand. And uh, and I couldn't play it up to speed. i tell you now, I could not wow. play it up to speed. And yet I remember when we recorded it, Steve Lillywhite had us pretty much double track all the guitar parts. And that was one of them. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, yeah, that's a seamless double track. You'd hardly know there were two guitars playing. Uh, so that was how effortless it was in my 20s. Now I'm... <laughs> nudging 70 no i'm gonna need some notice on that
0: <laughs> i i think it's true with a lot of uh, you know, people you, you you forget the athleticism that's involved in playing a musical instrument whether it's drums or, or or keyboards or and especially you know guitars like you're perfectly capable of playing all of those notes and, <laughs> in order without messing it up but the speed of which you're required to play is is incredible
1: that's right no it was that was part of the whole punk thing it was more energy um yeah it was more perspiration than inspiration should we say yeah and yeah. that was a big big part of it the actual on-stage energy we never forgot that you know and it was just it just came naturally
0: you mentioned the police and and their and their musicianship my understanding and this is you know after talking to uh, you know you pageant who certainly worked with them and and other people that i've talked to it's like I think they drew as much from you guys as you may have from them and and that there was some sophistication that was coming off XTC, which I think inspired them in a lot of ways. Never mind just the fact that, you know, uh, Pajam had engineered and produced, you know, some of your records. I think they were learning things very specifically about how you guys approached your songs. And I think they applied the same thing to theirs, especially, you know, later on in, in their career.
1: Well I don't you'd have to ask Sting or Stewart or or even Andy Summers about that. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't possibly say but they did they were they were kind enough to allow us to share their bus. We did a tour, we did some tour dates with them at the end of 1980 at some American big big arena shows which was great for us cause it exposed us to a lot of people. Uh, we, we, we opened up for them and, uh, and we, we traveled with them on their bus. So they must've liked us for for a short while anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, um, we got along fine, you know, as far yeah. as I remember, we, there was no, uh, no antipathy or any, any
0: kind of, well, I, I gotta tell you, I've a... never heard anyone say a bad word about Dave Gregory. I've heard people say you know a couple of things about Andy, maybe, maybe Colin on occasion, but not very often, but, Nobody says anything bad about Dave Gregory. I don't know if oh, they're they
1: do not know me too well, do they? they I, I'm, to... I'm wondering
0: if they're afraid of you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's nice to have friends. That's all I'm gonna say on that <laughs> one. I,
0: I do want to talk about the decision to come off the road, because to me it's a fascinating and 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 very sad story as well. My understanding from, from talking to Andy is that this is this is a situation that had been going on for a while. He had been addicted to uh, to Valium, which he had been taking since the age of twelve, and uh, suddenly he he stops. And in in many cases, if you took somebody off of Valium, the withdrawal from that would kill him. And mm. uh, here's Andy going through a really significant situation, and and you guys are just looking to to continue as a band, play on the road. It had to be incredibly frightening to be a part of that did you suspect that andy was having a problem prior to him quitting or or were you blindsided by that whole thing
1: well i didn't realize i didn't understand the uh the nature of his addiction to valium i knew he was taking some kind of uh some medication of some sort but i never i didn't really question it that to be perfectly honest with you uh i should have done possibly maybe we all should have done realised. but like i say we we didn't uh, we couldn't think further than where, where you know when the next gig was or when the next album session was going to start or when what the new songs were going to sound like i mean it was just we just took it for granted that Andy was always going to be delivering um, we knew he wasn't happy on the road and I knew also because uh, I, I kind of roomed with him for a while and occasionally he'd have these panic attacks in the middle of the night, which I, which I knew wasn't normal. But it was, you know, but then again, Andy isn't, every, you know, the guy you meet every day. He's, he's, he's sort of, I always knew was a little bit odd, <laughs> but I had no idea that, uh, you know, what, what was causing this. And maybe that's what the medication was for—to help to stop these panic attacks. So I knew that there was something amiss, but I didn't realize how serious it was.
0: By the time he decides that he can no longer do this, he can no longer perform or or tour. As a guy that that's working that close to him, what was going on in your head as far as you know the future of your? of your career that had to be, you know, remarkably frightening on what, you know, one hand, here's your, your partner and your friends struggling with something really significant. But on the other hand, we're talking about your livelihood as, as well. That's, that's a, that's a pretty heavy burden to shoulder for, for a young guy.
1: Well, you know, we didn't really have what you'd call a successful career. Nobody was getting properly paid. We were getting wages uh, and we'd been on the road for... I mean, this another reason Andy wanted to come off the road, he wasn't seeing any financial reward. None of us were. Uh, the most money, I think, that he was being paid at the time came from broadcast royalties, mm. not even publishing money, or it's certainly not record royalties. We were in debt to the company, to hundreds of thousands, and there were no... You know, we never never got to see any accounts. And we were doing all this road work and everything, and it, it's the it's the old story, you know. Uh, it's just what happens to every single band. Most bands find out about it and do something about it. We didn't. We just kept going as though nothing was happening, and so uh, when it, when we when Andy finally gave up and said, "Look, I can't do this anymore," then we actually had a chance to take a look at exactly what had been going on with with the money. But the thing was, you see, to me, I I felt at the time, I was just fortunate to be there. I was doing what I'd always dreamt of doing. How long I was going to continue to be able to do that and get away with it, it was neither here nor there, really. If if it ended in 1982 for all of us, I'd have said, well, okay, we did that. It might be something to tell our kids about in the future. Mm. But there it is. It's been, we've done that work, it's done. And uh, we can we can go down the pub and entertain folks with it. And that's it. Right. I never really had, none of us had what you'd call a career plan. So it, it didn't really, uh, you know, we had enough money to live on. But it, it, it was kind of, you know, the day job was never that far away. It was always a, a likelihood that we were going to have to go back and do that at some point. Uh, fortunately, and for all his problems, never lost the need to continue to create music and write songs. And I remember him saying at the time, "You know, look, I, I'm really sorry this has had to happen. I can't do the touring thing anymore, but I don't want us to break up. I'll keep writing songs if you're happy to just make records. If we if we can carry on making records, let's see how long we can do that." And that's the reason I'm I'm still I'm talking to you today, <laughs> and I'm still thank goodness Re- reasonably solvent
0: those next two records mummer and, and and big express i mean there are there are moments on those records that are you know, just wonderful and hold up to anything else than the XTC catalog but they get maligned in a, in a little bit of ways especially big express which i'm not sure i really i, I really buy because there are like i said there are moments on both of those records you say well this is just this is just amazing stuff um Loving a Farm Boy's Wages would be a perfect example. That's that is a beautiful song with incredible guitar work for an acoustic song. And mm-hmm. uh, I think of other songs on on Big Express too. It's fascinating to me that the thing that winds up changing your fortunes is the Dukes of Stratosphere. After that, because it's on one hand it's it, it's a lark, but on the other hand, on the other side of the equation is this brilliant you know, record, uh, the 25 o'clock, every part of it is just so well done and so precise and so, so (laughs) earnest. I thought it was the most incredible thing I, I had ever heard any band attempt to do. And I, and I still, I still hold to that. Well, that's brilliant uh, because we love doing that.
1: And I think the fact that, uh, neither mama nor the big express sold insufficient quantities to, to change our lives. And certainly (laughs) didn't go down that well with the record company um you know we find ourselves i'm sure you've heard the story anyway we found ourselves with a, with some uh, a bit of time before christmas of 84 john Le- we had john leckie on standby who who was you know going to work with andy on this other project that had been cancelled so we had some they 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 both had spare time and uh, andy had been talking about doing this psychedelic send up ep for years and years even before i joined the band he it, 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 it pitched the idea to me um so he said he said look i've got um john thinks he can find a studio for a couple of weeks that's enough time to do an ep uh you fancy doing it so we just said well all right yeah why not <laughs> We're not doing anything else. We can't promote the Big Express. We can't, uh, you know. There's nothing, nothing else going on until the next recording budget comes in. Let's go and do it. So, yeah, that was, uh, and it was a case of just finding all the stuff that we loved listening to as kids. Going to school, you know, yeah. this, and uh, being there when the first blossoming of that whole psychedelic period uh of british pop happened in 67 68 where people were using sitars and melatrons and uh, experimenting with indian instruments and all the all the silly stuff and the pink floyd studio tricks and all that kind of (laughs) all of all all the the sid Barrett, barrett the barrett era of era of pink floyd was really that was one of the touchstones but yeah, no, it was just a, a real laugh, a good, good fun. Yeah, And I was amazed at how uh, how well it turned out.
0: It sounded like it was the, and and I may be wrong about this. It sounded like that was the Dukes of Stratosphere was the first time you guys were having fun again. Like not to say that the other record, that the previous two records were not fun or they had had their moments, but it sounded like you were taking it very seriously back then. Like there was a lot on the line but here you just you, it, it it all stripped it down and said you know, it, to hell with it let's just have a good time and that's what it sounded exactly.
1: like that's that's exactly how it went and the and we um the most fun i'd had in, in the studio since drums and wires because I mean, that was that was great for me it, it, it was a complete novelty making that record. Yeah. We were just feeling our way as um, as players together and just finding out what we sounded like as a new band. And now here was this other band that we were experimenting with, trying to become. And, and it was just, there was just no pressure, like you say. There was a lot of pressure on us, uh, as I say, with two, I, I won't say failed albums behind us. But albums that were not seen, uh, that hadn't done our career any favours, really. We were trying, kind of treading water. Right. Plus, of course, we'd lost Terry Chambers. It was a big part of the original band, a huge part of it. So we were having to, you know, acclimatise ourselves with, there was nothing wrong with the way, of, we loved Pete Fitz drumming. I thought he was a great drummer and he fitted in. He was a really nice guy. He was he was keen. He was, he, he was up for the gig and he played really well and we all got along and he was but again you know the thing is i think perhaps knowing that we didn't have to go out and reproduce the songs live meant that we got a bit maybe a little bit lazy and um overindulgent possibly i I don't know don't know what it was because i don't think it was that much wrong with the songs themselves
0: no i don't i don't think so either And, and i think you know i mean you can make the argument that uh, the Dukes of Stratosphere were probably more overindulgent because you were taking—I mean, you—you you were throwing everything into these songs, every possible trick that you could possibly try to recreate that psychedelic sound was used in in this EP. It was you know, to me, if you want to talk about indulgent, thank goodness it was because it came up with a brilliant, brilliant effort by you guys.
1: Well, the, the difference between um, the Big Express and the Dukes. Was the fact that we had a little rule? We said, "Look, what, how they would worked in 1966 through to 68 would have been, you know, the record company would have allowed them three hours to do everything. So it's going to have to be first takes for everything. No, we can't. No overdubs. No, there were lots of overdubs, obviously, but first take. Whatever floats through your transom while that while the while the basic track is playing, and you that's what's going on. Take. Amazingly, that's that's pretty much." how it went down. Um, there were a couple of places where we used some tricks. I can, I'm thinking now of the um, the piano break in Your Gold Dress where there's this little sort of um, Nicky Hopkins style arpeggiating little piece in the middle section of that song, which... If you if you play along with a record, you'll notice it's in C sharp major, and that's a very that's like seven sharps, horrible key. <laughs> so I said to John, "Can we slow this down a semi-tone? I can play it in C major, much much simpler. And um, then when you speed it up, hopefully it'll be in pitch. So the song slowed down a little. I could play it in a simple key. Speed it back up. Suddenly I'm a genius." <laughs> So that was a little bit of trickery that really, really paid off because it gave the piano that daft, you know, the 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 Rolling Stones um she's a rainbow kind of effect.
0: <laughs> Do you think that skylarking could have happened had it not been for the Dukes of Stratosphere? Just the just the idea on, on, on the songs themselves, because I mean I've heard it said before, and I and I and I kind of agree with it that there are there's a lot of parallels between that project and and skylarking and it just it just seemed like there's there's a there's a lot of connectivity between both of those
1: yeah i think the skylarking is the dukes uh you know abroad grown up <laughs> and um working with todd rundgren who is another i mean he he fits the dukes stratosphere the guitar player from the NAS yes please we'll have him <laughs> and so um Yes, you're absolutely right. And I'd actually sent Todd. Uh, we met Todd Rundgren went one on tour in '81. He he showed up quite by by chance in the, our dressing room at the Park West in Chicago, having played a gig with Utopia in Chicago there, that same night. And he, he raced over to our our gig to catch the last ten minutes of it. And there he is suddenly he's in the dressing room. I said, "What? What are you doing here?" <laughs> Uh, I was, uh, you know, his biggest fan, suddenly here he is. And uh, so that was our first introduction. So after we'd done 25 o'clock, I thought, well, Todd might enjoy this. I'm going to send a copy of this to his management and and hopefully they'll pass it on because they'd already done this up and defaced the music, Mm -hmm. which was a send-up of a lot of Beatles songs done in the Beatles style, very cleverly kind of disguised. Uh, which I'd really enjoyed. So I sent sent him a copy. I heard nothing, nothing at all, until, the, you know, the list of producers was announced by Virgin Records, people who... Uh, we were told by our a department at Virgin that we needed to find an American producer for the next record because we weren't selling any records in the States, and that's what we needed to do if we were going to continue. So when Todd Rundgren's name came up, that was it. Game over. I'm sorry, you can send the other guys home. Yeah, we've got to work. Do this with Todd. This is our one big opportunity.
0: There's been a lot written and a lot said by by all of you. Uh, you know, Andy in particular about you know what went on in the studio. And it, I mean, obviously, this is like a situation where you have two alpha males and you know two attack dogs going after each other at the same time. And it just seemed like it was it was destined to be difficult. But yet the result of it is just a remarkable record in, in, in Skylark. I, I, I told Andy the story when I, uh, when I spoke to him that when my kids were, were really young and I, like real, real young and they would cry and, uh, you know, they were upset or whatever. I would, I would pick them up out of their, out of the crib and I would sing to them two songs. One was, uh, was Beatles, uh, you know, here, there and everywhere. And another one was like a lullified version of earn enough for us, uh, which you would not think would be a, a great lullaby, but I mean, it's how I felt it. And it always, I told Andy, you know, his music always put my kids to sleep. So, um, but <laughs> oh, well, that's a great story.
1: Yeah. And, and, and because I can hear the, the the melody of it. It's quite sort of, yes, that could be transferred to a lullaby. I think you could probably, uh, use that in a different setting and it would w- would work really well. I mean did it do the trick? Did the kids go to sleep? Uh
0: yeah, I don't think it would work on them now. They're all in their, <laughs> they're all in their <laughs> 20s, but back but back then uh it, it certainly did do the trick and it's always been one of my favorite XTC tracks, but the the reality is is that was it had to be very very difficult. You're one you're excited about working with Todd Rundgren. You got a great bunch of songs here and yet there's just this overwhelming tension between Andy and and Todd that to this day has never been resolved and probably will never be
1: no I mean yeah much has been made about this conflict it wasn't always like that there were just a few really you know like you say heads butting antlers being you know heads yeah that that kind of thing goes on but of course it got very um because like you say they're both very headstrong people uh, the immovable object meeting the irresistible force and all that but it didn't it most of the time they got along i mean it was it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't like a, they were at each other's throats the whole time what was really bad and i blame andy for it principally was Bleeding to the press about it afterwards. He should never have done that. You know, if you have personal issues with the producer or with anybody, you don't go to the press and, and start moaning about it. It's just wrong. And But then again, he's always been a blabbermouth and you can't <laughs> shut him up. If he's got to be in his bonnet, everybody has to know about it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm pointing the finger at him for, for that bad feeling because it just, when it finds its way into print, or in, on video or anything you know it assumes a, a much bigger importance than it actually was yeah uh, you no know, we got a great record out of it and uh, and we worked with a legendary guy who was who who saved our career you know he, he deserves all the credit for saving our career in america because dear god wasn't you know and he didn't even want it on the album and he i'm not sure that he would have you know, had anyone else suggested we get a child to sing the opening verse, he would have, uh, you know, told us what to do with that idea. <laughs> but Todd pushed it through, and um, and that's what kind of broke us broke us in the states.
0: The uh, the documentary we talked about, this is Pop, shows uh, Andy trying to describe uh, his his process of writing songs, uh, the synesthesia where he's able to connect one sense to, to inform another. So maybe he sees music and associates it with a, with a color or a number or whatever it may be, some visual, uh, that comes to it. And he, uh, he showed it, uh, on the, the documentary and he, and he kind of did it when, uh, when I talked to him, it, it, you know, a, a lot gets made about that kind of thing. You know, Brian Wilson has that. There are other writers that have it a- and you hear the word, tossed around and I don't know how you feel about this but you hear the word genius being used in association with Andy do you see it that way and do you see him as a genius as a result of what he has been able to to come up with
1: I think genius is one of these overused words uh, genius is something uh, I was grew up thinking that was that was reserved for people who were uh, who had some kind of you know, extra, extra sensory gifts that were extraordinary and unique to them, were and certainly Andy has a talent that is pretty unique. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily describe him as a genius. Maybe, maybe because I'm too close to him, you know, I know him too well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, there aren't many musicians I would describe as the genius musicians. I would say uh, you could count on the fingers of one hand of having the ability to produce magic at will, uh, regardless of um, any kind of formal tuition or instruction. Stevie Wonder springs to mind right. how that man <clears throat> has achieved what he's done with without eyesight, just from pure instinct and intuition and, and energy and all the rest of it. Um, there's very, very few people that I would, uh, in musical terms. And I don't know enough about science or scientists <laughs> to, to tell you who, who, the, who the real geniuses might be.
0: A few years after Skylarking and after Oranges and Lemons, and you mentioned, uh, you know, Chalk Hills and Children's, None Such comes up. And there's a couple of songs on there where you say, man, if it's if it isn't genius, he's damn well close to it. It's loaded with songs, you know, from both of them, both. Him and uh, and Colin and and your playing and arrangements are are just perfect. But after that, things with Virgin come to a head, and I believe it was your suggestion that maybe what needs to happen to get yourself out of this this debt and this difficult situation is to go on on strike. And for the next couple of years, y- there was no XTC music and there was no uh, you know movement. Tell me about. What? Because one of the things in the documentary that was never addressed that I really wanted to know is, once you guys decided to go on strike against Virgin, what did you do between the moment you made the decision to the moment that you finally were able to get out of that contractual obligation with them?
1: Yeah, what what was going on? That's a good question. Well, we we uh, we indulged. We got involved with a, a, fair, a variety of other projects. I can't recall exactly what Andy was, uh, you know, he, he was producing bands. Uh, he wasn't doing any performing as such. He was writing songs for other artists. Um, let me see, 1992 through to 97. Well, let me see. I toured, I did a tour with Amy Mann. I toured with some other musicians as well, I did session work I was uh, did a couple of albums in Italy with a, an artist mm-hmm. called Alice um, I was doing a, a bunch of sessions actually but not. it, it wasn't like a full time I think I was just sort of <laughs> bumming around Swindon uh, thinking about doing my own record and not getting very far with it, it's of making a start and just abandoning it because it was rubbish and that's still going on to this day but that's another subject, <laughs> story altogether but um, no, that's a good question. I mean, the time kind of uh, just just went by very, very quickly. Um, and uh, Andy and Colin ca- carried on writing, perhaps not as, uh, as intently as they had done previously, but it was, they were still writing songs. And I think the demos uh, started to appear sometime around 95, 96. And I'd begun, you know, sort of, doing prep work on on a lot of the songs and they were you know they just kept piling up I think I ended up with with more than 30 songs mm. in demo form that I was listening to and trying to um, think up parts for thing was the difference was Andy had, in that time built a studio in his garden a little the garden shed and it was equipped with um multi-track recorder the, the original ADAT machine the Alesis ADAT 8-track digital mm. recorder and his demos were becoming you know almost like professional finished masters not not to Andy's uh, satisfaction of course I would have listened to him and thought well you could put that out tomorrow that's just great you know because he'd already done an album with Martin Newell I think that was his, the first thing that he'd done, The Greatest Living Englishman, Englishman yes, yeah. Martin. Yeah, that was all done. It was the first project he'd done in the shed. That would have been 93, 93 into 94. And so it was all starting, everyone was starting to work alone in their own musical dens. So when these demos finally appeared, you know, they were pretty much fully fledged and fleshed out and there wasn't that much for me to do as it turned out but you know I'm still finding corners uh, that you you probably noticed the apple venus record yeah sounds less like a band and more like a solo project and so uh, that was that was kind of uh, but to go back to your question about vir- uh, virgin the company had changed you know the people different the, the departments all all the people that we knew there had gone moved on to other uh, companies done different things we didn't know the new people. All we had was this outstanding royalty audit claim that they refused to settle. We got mm-hmm. some money, but we, they, didn't, uh, they didn't, you know, it cost a lot of time and money getting these things dealt with. So their attitude was, well, look, you know, if you want this money, you'll have to take us to court, which we didn't feel like paying any more. Lawyers to do, and it because it wasn't that much. It, it was just the principle of it, you know. And I just, I'm probably speaking. I shouldn't probably be speaking, but it's a long time ago. It's all, it's water under the bridge now. You live and learn. We've done similar audits since, and they've paid up, and they've they've been okay about it. That's universal music now, you know. They're in charge of everything, and um, so. For me, having having quit the band in ninety eight, I had them you know agree to pay me my share of the Virgin catalogue, then basically all the stuff that we'd done on Virgin that was uh, that had now recouped, and they were getting you know royalty every six months, yeah. not a huge one. It was enough money to live on. So that's how the situation is today, fast forwarding.
0: Because I, I mean, I've always, okay. I've always wondered how how you guys found a way to fare through all that. It's a pretty bold decision to have made, but I mean, I'm glad that in hindsight things are are okay, and you've been able to you know make a living out of that. Because I'd be scared to death to do that. Well, but you I'd have be to remember,
1: yeah, Andy and Colin, of course, being songwriters, they got publishing royalty, and that was a huge amount of money compared with what you got from record sales. Because of course, there's uh, all kinds of associated costs with with record sales. By by the time you get your three havens, everybody else has been paid. Whereas publishing money that goes directly to the writer, as does PRS, you know the the the, the PRS payments for public performance. Um, now, as side men, we get a, a share of what from from this company called PPL. We get paid a royalty every uh, I think It's four. I think we get paid we get a little bit of money for, for broadcast royalties which helps, which helps a lot but I didn't have a family to feed you see so it was easy for me it was just me mm. I didn't have a wife and kids to look after and I was also living rent free because well I'd lived in a tiny two up two down house in in the town centre in Swindon for 15 years <laughs> it cost me you know I, I'd got the mortgage paid off just yeah. before this awful nation began
0: you all three of you Still live in Swindon. You know, Swindon is a is a is a good sized town, but it's not so big that you don't occasionally must find yourself in the same room together. I don't I don't know if if you ever bump into Andy or or Colin or does just that simply not happen?
1: No, I haven't seen Andy face to face for about must be 12, 13 years now. Really? They occasionally exchange emails and they're reasonably civilized and friendly. <laughs> Colin I don't even know where Colin lives I know he lives somewhere on the other side of Swindon um, in the village but I, I don't know where he lives no idea
0: I, I know you must get you know, hammered all the time about the idea of you know getting the band back together and, and when I talked to Colin I think he just I think he said it probably more concisely than, than, than anyone and, and basically said when you've spent your entire life doing as much as you can on one project at some point you just say I, there's no, there's no appeal in doing it anymore. I've done all I can do. And yeah. I think with the kind of you know personalities that the three of you, you know, have you, you, it would have to be just purely about music and everything would have to be cast aside. But I don't think Colin's got the, I think he feels like he's getting too old for this. And, you know, I, you hear all the time about Andy still working. And I think, you know, even you're kind of in a, in a semi retirement situation. In your view, I mean, what would it really take to do it? I mean,
1: to, to get to do XTC again? Yeah. I or, can't imagine it ever happening because, yeah. um, well, as you probably know, Terry Chambers is now out on the road with uh, the with XTC. Uh, he's got three, found three guys uh, who are happy to p- play XTC songs they've just done a very successful uh tour of american clubs yeah they've just got back last week I mean, it all went very well and i remember i did went to terry uh invited me to come over come down for a jam this was about a year 18 months ago when he was thinking of putting this band together and uh, steve tilling was there and couple of other guys who, who are no longer with them, and they just said, well, "Well, just for old times' sake, come down and have a have a play," you know. So I, I went down, took a guitar down to their rehearsal room, and we ran through a bunch of old songs. For the first time, I first time I played with Terry since he quit, you know. Yeah. And um, it was it was okay, but <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, by the way, now they said, "Well, do you do you think it's worth going out and doing this a second time?" And you know, and having another having another bash. And I said, "No, I just haven't got the love for it now. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> this has been fun uh, for old times' sake."
0: Because he because uh, he wanted I, you to do Scissor Man, right?
1: <laughs> well, that's right. That, actually, that was one. I think I managed to talk my way out of doing it. <laughs> but there was most of the stuff from a lot of Drums and Myers and Black Sea stuff yeah. and Settlement as well, which were all. Um, you know, I, I, most of them I could, I could just about struggle through. Yeah, and I knew that I could play them if I'd get, if I'd allowed myself enough time to practice and be prepared. It's whether I wanted to do it, and frankly, I didn't.
0: Well, Dave, I got to tell you, it, it's it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And and uh, again, it it's one of those things where uh, I'm I'm glad I got Andy and Colin out first because really, this is this is the interview <laughs> I wanted to do. Uh, but no, oh, it, yeah. it's uh, it's a, it's a real joy to talk to you. And I, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure.
0: Good to talk to you.
1: All the best. You too.
0: Look, I'm not going to make any promises, but one of these days I may get around to talking about XTC again. I thought you should know. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to share it, subscribe it, like it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at backs at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again to Canna Provisions for their support, and you could support them by going to CannaProvisions.com. We'll see you next time on Baxi's Musical Podcast.